Well, we are continuing our series on developing a biblical worldview. This morning, we're going to think on the subject of the gospel, in particular, the preaching of the gospel and the significance of preaching, of preaching the gospel when it comes to adding to the numbers of the church. I mean, whose job is it anyway, and how should it be done? Nowadays, there are whole companies that focus on church growth, whole movements, books, advertisements, marketing schemes, seminars, all kinds of options are made available to help churches with church growth. I did a simple Google search for marquee signs for churches, and the very first thing that came up was a webpage with the following statement, and I quote, are you in charge of growing your church's congregation? I feel like I have to give it a little flavor, so just bear with me. Are you in charge of growing your church's congregation? <laughs> Nothing works better than church LED signs. Make your church stand out, get noticed, and be seen with mega LED technology. <laughs> End quote. Amen. Yes, that was an advertisement for a company that produces LED signs for churches. No, we're not in the market. <laughs> but that search did lead me to another thought. Again, that was the first thing that came up, but that search did lead me to another thought because I've also done some searching for pastoral ministry positions in the past, and one of the main things that's a part of a church ad for the pastor is that he must be able to help grow the church. You see that phrase often in those advertisements for church pastors. Now, obviously, in some sense, that's true, right? It is true in the sense that pastors should help to grow the church deeper through their teaching ministry. But what these churches' search committees usually mean is that the pastor should help the church grow wider, numerically. Is that really the job of the pastor? To preach the gospel every Sunday and save the lost? Is that really in the job description in 1 Timothy, Titus, or even Ephesians 4? I mean, what is the pastor's job? To shepherd the flock, to pray for the flock, to prepare the flock for ministry. To be the primary evangelist is just not on the list. Now, I did end up pulling up some other marquee signs, I guess, just, you know, just for your enjoyment. And I wonder how much time pastors devoted to coming up with these messages to try to draw people in. And I'll just hit a number of them here. One says, uh, be an organ donor. Give your heart to Jesus. Now, again, people are driving by, right? And they're seeing these signs like, what are they supposed to do with that? I mean, really? Uh, how about um, the manger was the first king-size bed? Uh, you're on heaven's most wanted list. Forgive your enemies, it messes with their heads. Where are we going with that? Um, how about get right or get left? I, I thought this was uh, funny. Looking for a lifeguard, ours walks on water. Again, these are church marquee signs, right? Um, I'll give you one more, one that I've seen often that is both right and wrong. I think wrong in a bad way. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. Now, it's right in a sense that we do convey the significance of the gospel through our lives. In other words, in Paul's words from Titus, we do properly adorn the doctrine of salvation by being zealous for good deeds. We adorn, we decorate, we beautify the message of the gospel with our good deeds. The effect of the gospel is clearly seen in our holiness, our love for others, our zealousness for good deeds. That is true. 
However, it would be biblically inaccurate for us to say that we can preach the gospel without words. The gospel, the good news, is conveyed by means of preaching, by the use of words. The revealed truth of God communicated by the lips of people who have been saved for Christ, by Christ, for his glory and the good of others. Biblically, the means of communicating the gospel is preaching. It is communicated with our lips. We've already read from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But again, whose job is it really to preach the gospel? Who's responsible for bringing sinners into the church and adding to its number? If we listen to the ads on Google, if we look at your typical pastoral church announcement, we'll see the church driven and influenced by the world's marketing techniques. In the context of developing a biblical worldview, evangelism is often relegated to such worldly marketing techniques as we just heard. A catchy word or slogan, nice bright signs outside, something attractive to draw people in. But again, whose job is it to add to the numbers of the church? What do you think? What have you thought over the years? As you look around at our numbers, you think about evangelism in this church, do you think, I wish the pastors did more outreach? Do you think, I wish we had a bigger sign out front? And I do hope you struggle to answer that question of whose job is it just a bit. In one sense, it's a trick question. Someone said it is the Holy Spirit's job to add to the church, and that is correct. That is true. God adds to the church. God saves. He is the Savior. We are not. We do not add a single member to our number. But again, the reality is that God saves through the preaching of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul calls the gospel the power of God to save those who believe. And again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how would they hear without a preacher and how would they preach unless they've been sent? God saves and he saves by means of individuals who he saved already who communicate the gospel to sinners. I believe that's the central message in our passage today in 2 Corinthians 5. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. We're going to start at verse 18. In 2 Corinthians, Paul spends a significant amount of time defending his ministry as an apostle. He also addresses it from an intensely personal and pastoral perspective. In the section we're going to be in this morning, Paul touches on this very basic principle, the means that God uses to spread the gospel. God saves, God reconciles, and in reconciling us to himself, he commits to us, those who are reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. That is the example that we have from the life of the Apostle Paul. That is how he viewed his life and ministry, and it's instructive for us as we consider the basic ministry of the church. Those who are reconciled to God become reconcilers on behalf of God. That's the principle in this message. Let's go ahead and read that section together. Actually, start at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and then the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, we thank you once again that we can come together and pray now as we look at your word that you would instruct our hearts, instruct our minds, help us again to be of one heart, of one mind. Give us a listening heart as Solomon prayed so many years ago so that we may attain wisdom. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In this section, we'll see three movements. As Paul describes his ministry, the ministry of those who are reconciled, we'll see the source of his ministry. He starts out in chapter 18, and chapter 18, verse 18, just talking about the source of the ministry. The ministry comes from God. The supply of the ministry, what God supplies in order to see that this ministry is accomplished, and that is his people. And then a brief summary of the ministry. He summarizes what the ministry is all about with just one word, the word ambassador. We'll talk about that as we get to it. So we see the source of the ministry, the supply of the ministry, and then a summary of the ministry. Let's take a look at that first point. What, again, is the source of this ministry? And again, in verse, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul starts off and he says that all this is from God. Now, the all this there is functioning kind of like a therefore in the passage. It's kind of looking backward and forward. It's backward in the sense that Paul has been building up an argument up until this point. It's really a beautiful argument. We don't have time to fully flesh it out. He starts way back a number of chapters ago. But in the immediate context, the all this is from God looks back to what Paul just said about the newness of the individual who comes to faith in Christ. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. That's a beautiful text. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a believer Anyone in Christ is a new creation. If you've trusted in Christ, you're not the same person you used to be. You're not the same sinner you used to be. You're no longer enslaved to sin in the way you used to be. You're no longer powerless against sin the way you used to be. You're no longer an enemy of God the way you used to be. You no longer have to fear condemnation the way you used to. And to the point of Paul's words in these preceding verses, we no longer look at each other in the way we used to. He said we no longer regard one another according to the flesh, meaning those differences that we have in the flesh no longer have significance in terms of our dealings with each other. That they were Jews and others were Gentiles were insignificant. That some were rich and others were poor was insignificant. That culturally they may have had different practices, their languages may have been different, was insignificant in terms of how they regarded one another in the body of Christ, in terms of how they cared for one another. This was important in the overall context of Paul defending his ministry. Often in the text, he would talk about those who, as he says in verse 12 of our passage, boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. The false teachers who were trying to lead the church away from Paul and his ministry were boasting about themselves and presenting themselves as angels of light, as it were, as if they had it all together, as if they were outwardly more presentable than Paul. They looked better than him. They appeared better than him. They even say at one point that his uh, physical presence is insignificant. 
None of that should have mattered to the believers because we're all a new creation in Christ. None of that should matter to you or to I because we're all a new creation in Christ. Someone asked me recently why people dress up when they go to church, and I think that's a good question. My first thought is that we tend to dress for whatever occasion we find ourselves in, right? We wear bathing suits to the beach or the pool because that's the occasion. We don't wear them to the dentist. That would be weird. We wear formal outfits to a ball or a fancy restaurant because some places just won't let you in without it. And we want to distinguish our time at a fancy place or restaurant from our time playing out in the yard. But another consideration is the context, right? Some churches are more formal. My last church was a suit and tie only by leadership. Paul, I mean, Paul. <laughs> Scott knows what that's all about. <laughs> suit and tie only. You wear anything less, people look at you funny. That was the expectation. It wasn't stated outright. It was just the way it was. Here, the dress is a little less formal. I don't think I've worn a tie here in forever. Um, the reality is the scripture doesn't demand a certain kind of dress, though I'm sure some people would argue that. The goal overall is to honor the Lord, though, with whatever we wear, not to be a distraction to our neighbor, but to honor them as we worship together. So we have a measure of leeway in how we dress. And as we see each other dressing in a particular way, we refrain from passing judgment on how each other dress because we don't boast about outward appearance, but rather look to encourage one another in the heart. That's the goal. That's the desire. So if someone walks in here with poor clothing, bedraggled, looking like they just woke up from the side of the road. We're not, to disdain, we're not to disdain them. We're not to scoff at them. We're not to sit on the opposite side of the room because our desire is to see that their heart is reached for Christ. And likewise, if someone walks in here with gold and jewels and fancy apparel, we don't treat them better than everyone else. They're going to be just like everyone else, and we should desire to see that their heart is reached for Christ because we don't boast an outward appearance and neither does God. The gospel is all about making new creations, not dressing up the same old creation on the outside and sticking it in a church building with other people. If outward appearance is the most significant thing, no matter what the emphasis on the outward appearance becomes, then we're no better than those whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke of in the gospels. Back to the point, Paul says that all of this is from God. The newness of life we have in Christ he says it's all from God. Again, and he says that in the context of describing his ministry, a ministry that's often caused him to fear of his very life. This outward appearance, Paul says, is nothing to cling to. This outward appearance will be done away with. He spent some time earlier in chapter 5 and chapter 4 discussing how his ministry has caused him to frequently fear for his life, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies, Paul says. He says we are constantly being given over to death for Christ's sake. And he says I bear witness of that in my very body, in my flesh. But that's okay. Because even though death works in us, life works in you through this ministry. And that's the most important thing. That was his life. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. That was the goal. But again, how is that possible? How would people become this new creation? All this is from God, Paul says. 
The work of bringing about the new creation is from God. We didn't reach out to God. We didn't know that we were lost and so cried to be found out. We didn't know that we were sick and so cried to be healed. We were poor and wretched and blind and weak and had no idea that we were on our way to hell but God. All this is from God. God is the source of this ministry of new life, this ministry of reconciliation. Well, how does he do it? Again, that was the source of the ministry. It's from God. Now we see the supply of this ministry of reconciliation. Again, at the end of 18 and into verse 19. All this is from God, again, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Again, God is the instigator of salvation. He is the one who is the source of this ministry of reconciliation that Paul speaks of. God has done it. Through Christ, God reconciled people to himself. Implicit in that statement is the reality that we needed to be reconciled, right? There was a problem there. We were previously at odds with God. We were his enemies. Contrary to popular belief, the disposition of God towards the world is not one of friendship. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I've talked about this passage before, and that idea about being dead in their trespasses and sins. They were alive physically, but they were dead to God. You know, kind of like the best uh, illustration that I have is from The Godfather, you know, that, that whole era of things with, um, you know, the mafia. If someone said, you're dead to me, that means they don't acknowledge you. You have no place in their family. You have no relationship with them. You're completely and, and totally ostracized and forgotten. If they see you out on the street, they'll step on you, right? Um, and maybe there are other consequences that will come as a result. But there's no relationship is the point. And because we're in the realm of our sins, our trespasses and sins, we're dead to God. We have no relationship with him. There's no grace. There's no kindness. There's no goodness to be had there. There's a general grace that God gives to all mankind. He causes the sun to, to shine and the rain to fall. He waters their crops. He takes care of them in a the general sense as he does all of his creation. There's no special grace. There's no particular grace. There's none of what we get as believers, as those who have been called by him. Those who are outside of Christ are walking according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. They're living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And he says they're by nature children of wrath. When you say someone's a child of something, it's usually, it, it's usually intended to be, to be a, a very picturesque um, image, right? So uh, if you're a child of something, you're a chip off the old block, you're, 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 you're born out of that thing, whatever that thing is. They're children of wrath, those who are outside of Christ. They're born out of wrath. Their, their, their only end is going to be wrath. All they're ever going to know is wrath. They're the fish in the water that doesn't know they're wet. 
but the wet for them is wrath, the wrath of God. We were his enemies. Enemies by virtue of our very nature, our life, dead in the realm of our sins, again, walking about in them. For that reason, we needed reconciliation. Reconciliation is not an afterthought. It's not a secondary issue with respect to salvation. I remember learning a number of evangelistic techniques as a young believer, and one of the simplest and most widely used years ago was the ABCs of salvation. Some of you guys probably remember that, right? Admit you're a sinner, believe in the Lord Jesus, confess him as Lord. And that wasn't intended to be a comprehensive method, but rather just to give the bare bones of the gospel message. The problem is, with messages like that, is that when you start to um, simplify the message too much, you tend to miss a large point, a large part of it. It's not just that we're sinners, it's that our sin makes us enemies of God. And that's the problem. It's not just that we have to confess that we're sinners, it's that we have to acknowledge that God is not pleased with us. That our sin uh, makes us his enemies, puts us at odds with him. Our sin requires wrath. And so something needs to be done about that. The word translated to reconcile here means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. I like that definition. The exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. We're not talking about a relationship that was previously friendly And then something happened, and then you're trying to bring it back to what it was before. We're talking about a relationship that has, by its very nature, hostile. And we want to move from being hostile in our relationship to God to being friendly in our relationship with him. And there's only one way to do that. We're not reconciled to God in any other way but through Christ. God works to exchange that hostile relationship that he has with sinners for a friendly relationship by means of the gospel. Of course, this text makes clear that it is through Christ that we're reconciled. We're not reconciled to God in any other way, not by our works, not by our birth, having been born into a Christian home. That doesn't matter. Not by our being accepted by the world as good people, successful people. Your success in the world does not indicate God's blessing. We're reconciled only by Christ. That leads us to another thought. Christianity is an exclusive religion. In the world today, we try to stay away from absolutes. We try to shy away from absolutes. We don't want to say anything absolute because it's going to hurt people's feelings. But Christ was okay with that. Jesus was okay with saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say a way, a truth, and a life. He didn't say, I am my truth, and you can have your truth, right? That wasn't the conversation. The conversation was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one else. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. There's no other way to get to the Father but through him. We have to be confident in that that because Jesus was confident in that. He spoke definitively about that. There was no wavering in him. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Muhammad. Not through your free expression of whatever form of sexuality or gender you feel at the moment. You're reconciled in your relationship with God. Your relationship with God moves from hostility to friendship only in Jesus Christ. 
Again, God supplies us with reconciliation. He reconciles us to himself in Christ. But more than that, in reconciling us to himself, he also gives us a ministry. Again, Paul says in verse 18, God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The immediate reference to the us in the passage is, of course, Paul and the apostles. But in principle, it's also applied to us. Looking at verse 19, it's more of a recap of what he said in verse 18 and kind of an expansion. He says, again, all this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, or in other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul understands his ministry as an apostle to be, to be a ministry of reconciliation. His preaching ministry, with all of the difficulties that he endured, all of the trials that he had to endure, was a means of God reconciling the world to himself. I mean, what greater ministry is there? What greater work is there to do in the world? What greater thing is there to be a part of than what God is doing in changing the relationship he has with sinners from hostility to friendship? Again, not counting their trespasses against them. And that's kind of a remarkable statement, that he's not counting their trespasses against them. We'll get back to that in just a second. But that's how, what God does. God works, and he works through people. And again, that's the principle that we take away from this example, that God uses reconciled people to bring about reconciliation with other peoples of the world. That's what evangelism is all about biblically. That's the essence of the drive of the church when it comes to evangelism. We read passages in Revelation when we see people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth standing before the throne of God and worshiping, and we know that's the preordained end. That is what all of the history of humankind is leading up to, to an eternity of service and worship of the true and living God with the people who are united from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We know that end is coming, and we say hallelujah to that. But how is that end going to come? God has ordained that end, but how does he intend for us to get there? Well, he intends for us to get there by using each one of us to make it happen. And this is not a new phenomenon. In Genesis 12, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, set apart and blessed by God, and told that he was being blessed by God so that him and his descendants, through him and his descendants, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. So God chose a person and a people through that person to bring blessing to all other people. He reconciled with one person in order to bring blessing to other people. Abraham's descendants wrote a poem about their status before God as being blessed as a nation. Psalm 67, that was Genesis 12, by the way. But Psalm 67, we see this beautiful poem being written by God's people, and the nation is rejoicing for the blessing that God has bestowed on them, but they understand and they know that the blessing was not just for them. But he says in that text, they say in that text that God blesses us so that all the ends of the earth might fear him. God uses a reconciled people in order to bring reconciliation to other peoples. Matthew 28, the descendant of Abraham, an Israelite, the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ, upon his resurrection, prior to his ascension, said to his disciples, what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Jesus set apart this group of 12 disciples. He sent them out as having been reconciled to God themselves in order to bring about reconciliation for the other peoples of the world. God uses reconciled people to reconcile others to himself. And of course, again, here we see Paul's example as an apostle discussing this same truth of how God used him as a reconciled person to preach the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a message that has to be proclaimed. The world has sin. Because of this, its relationship with God is one of hostility. In order to move from hostility to friendship, there must be reconciliation that's only found in Christ. That is the message. And again, that message has to be proclaimed. It can't be acted out on television. It can't be acted out on a marquee sign. It can't be acted out simply by means of good works. It cannot be marketed. It must be proclaimed. How are you doing with that? It's easy to go through our lives as believers, sitting back and waiting for the next Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon to pop up. We have these so-called big-name preachers, both bad and and some good. We have these big names, and we tend to defer to them, to the experts, to those who went to school for it. We defer to the professionals to get the job done often, and that we take on the mindset of the world. Again, this whole worldview series is intended to get to the heart of what it means to think biblically in a fight against worldly thinking in the church. One of the most worldly mindsets that we have in the church is this tendency toward professionalism. We gravitate toward professionals. That's how the world is set up. We have these high degrees for specialty in, in, in every kind of field that you can imagine. Now, to be sure, before I go under the knife, I want to make sure that the guy who's holding the knife has been vetted thoroughly, that he spent you know, more years than I've been alive in school, um, you know, that he's taken all the exams he needs to, and uh, he knows what he's doing, for sure. But that same logic cannot be applied to everything church. Because the church is not intended for professionals. The ministry of the church is not intended for professionals. The preaching of the gospel is not intended for professionals. It's for us. And maybe it's not professionalism, But maybe you're one of those who uh, take that sign that I read earlier seriously. You only use words if necessary, right? Your whole focus is on making sure people see your good deeds. They see your good works. You let other people in front of you in line. You don't cut people off while driving. You're a blessing to your neighbors. You smile at the checkout line. You do a good job at work. You earn high marks in school. Maybe you leave your Bible out every once in a while in public so people see that you have a Bible. You say your prayers before eating a meal. You pay your taxes. You're at church every Sunday and everyone knows it. You even show up and decry abortion as loud as you can. You speak out in rage when you feel the church's rights are being infringed upon. You always vote Republican. I'm just going to let that one sit there for a minute. To all of that, I would say, that's all good, but so what? There are a lot of good people in the world. Some of the nicest people I know are not Christians. I've worked with so many people 
I mean, just in, you know, the past couple of jobs that I've had, people from literally all over the world and, and believing all kinds of different things. And they've been some of the nicest people, kind, generous, helpful, would give you the shirt off their back if they had to. And they're not believers. So what makes you different if that's all you do? What makes you different? The thing that distinguishes us is the truth. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the message we proclaim with our lips. It's the banner we hold high of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the truth that he is the only way, truth, and life. And it's the privilege that we have to proclaim that truth to the world. So I ask again, how are you doing with that? When was the last time you communicated the message of reconciliation to someone else? Again, you don't need the four spiritual laws or the ABCs of salvation, not even two ways to live. I actually grabbed one of these tracks because we have these um, available for you. And I, I, go, I, I look at the little rack Sunday after Sunday, and it seems like there's always the same number of tracks sitting on the rack every single Sunday. But we have these available, and this is a great resource um, the nice thing about this is that it gives like a, a very broad overview and has pictures. <laughs> and there's an app for it too. So if you don't want to carry around the track, there's an app for it. There's an app for that. But it's a nice tool, right? But you don't need those tools. You don't even need to have your life 100% together. You don't need to be the most spiritual looking or acting person. You don't need to be a professional evangelist. You just need to know that you've been reconciled to God, why you needed to be reconciled, and who the one is who brings about reconciliation. If you know that, you can tell someone else the gospel. Again, getting back to our text, we've already looked at the source of the ministry. God is the source of the ministry. All of these things are from God. We see the supply of the ministry. God reconciles people to himself and he commits to them the ministry of reconciliation. And now we see a brief summary of the ministry of reconciliation as we move forward here. We'll see that the overall quality of this summary that Paul gives, this description, is not intended to bolster Paul's appearance, but rather to emphasize the glory of God, the glory of Christ. In other words, Paul's ministry of reconciliation is not a badge that he wears as a professional, but rather it's an attitude of service that he takes to lift up the name of Jesus in the world. And he sums all of that up in that one word, ambassador. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, And then the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In a previous message in the series, I talked about magnifying Christ, that the believer's life ought to be about magnifying Christ. Again, like those jumbotrons that you see in a sporting event um, for the people who sit in the nosebleeds. They make make the, the image of the field bigger for those folks. 
Our life ought to magnify Christ. It ought to be all about making him look bigger to the world. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what that's all about. He says, this ministry of reconciliation is not about me. It's about Jesus. I'm his ambassador. We understand what ambassadors are. They're representatives, right? They stand in the place of someone else. They have not their own authority, but rather represent the authority of another. That is simply what they are. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. It's his authority, his will, his work on the cross, his appeal through us. When we're proclaiming the truth of the gospel, we're not proclaiming the truth of the gospel because of who we are. Again, it's not our truth versus someone else's truth. It's the truth. There's only one truth. There's no way for there to be multiple truths. That is completely and utterly ridiculous. It's nonsense to say that there are multiple truths. Truth, by its very definition, is, 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 is singular. It's just one. It's objective. When we start talking about all these other truths, we, we really um, do a disservice to the English language and to, uh, to logic. But when we talk about proclaiming the truth of the gospel, we're not proclaiming it because of who we are. We're proclaiming it because of who he is. Again, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're not proclaiming the truth of the gospel in our own authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. All. There's no higher authority than Jesus anywhere in all of the cosmos, in all of God's creation. There's no greater authority than Jesus So you don't need permission from anyone to share the gospel to anyone other than Jesus. He's already given it. He's commanded it. We're not proclaiming the truth of the gospel based on our relationship with another person. Certainly it is good and helpful to build relationships with others in order to more effectively share the gospel, but it's not necessary because it's not our relationship with them that's in question. Even if there is hostility between you and another, your relationship, your hostility towards them is not the real issue. The real issue is the hostility that exists between them and God. And that needs to be addressed. Because they're in clear and present danger. And danger from God. As ambassadors for Christ, which we are by virtue of the fact that we've been reconciled, Our first duty is to represent him, to make his appeal to the unbelieving world, to implore them with this truth. Again, not first to be good people, to be moral people. We're not trying to convince them to understand the reality of gender and sexuality as God has created it. First, we're not first trying to convince them to save the unborn. We're not first trying to convince them to be on the right side of the political spectrum. We're not first trying to convince them that justice needs to be done, that racism needs to be abolished, that police need to be defunded, or whatever other list of things we have going on in the world today. That's not first the priority. The first priority is helping them to understand that they are currently at odds with the God of the universe, the only sovereign, the one who will cast them both body and soul into hell and can do it at any moment. We represent him. We're sent for that purpose. In verse 21, he gives a summary of the message that we're to proclaim. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Again, we said earlier that God is the one who does the reconciling. All these things are from God. He's done it. And Paul explains here how he's done it. He made the one who knew no sin, the sinless one, the righteous one, as he's called in 1 John, to be sin. Jesus became sin for us. And he did that so that in him, in the sinless one, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange that happened. And that goes back to the earlier phrase in verse 19 that I said we'd get back to, not counting their trespasses against them. How is God able to not count our trespasses against them? Well, it's very simple. He explains it here. God is able to not count our trespasses against us because he took our sin, our trespasses, and laid it on Jesus. And Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God for us. And so when he died... Our sin was done away with. And likewise, the righteousness of Jesus, that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in him. His righteousness was given to us as a free gift. And so now we're free from any sin. And God doesn't count any trespasses or sins against us. Why? Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We've been infused with the righteousness of Jesus. Our bank account has been filled with the righteousness of Jesus. And our sin will be remembered no more. That's amazing grace. That's reconciliation. God has done it. And Jesus now lives forevermore. He rose again from the dead. And because he lives forevermore, our salvation our righteous standing before God will exist forever because we're in him, in the righteous one. When we have disputes and arguments among ourselves, we have to get mediators, we get lawyers or friends or another family member to intervene because both parties often refuse to give in. We're obsessed with being right when we have conflict. We're obsessed with getting justice due to us. Even if we were wrong somewhat, we always find a way of making clear that the other person was more wrong than us. And we look for many different ways to justify our anger, our frustration, instead of letting it go. But God didn't do that. When there was hostility between us and him, he didn't sit back and wait for us because he knew that time would never come. We didn't reach out to him. He reached out to us. He didn't offend us first. We offended him. And our offense is the greater offense. He's always been good, holy, just, and upright. But we have just rejected his rule. In spite of all this, all of these things are from God. This great act of reconciliation is from him. It's his gift. God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I don't have time to unpack this too much, but just thinking about how God handled his relationship with us has to impact the way we handle our relationships with others. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Listen, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We should have no grudge, no ill will, no bitterness, no complaint, no unreconciled relationships among believers. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We lived as he does. Well, we're coming in for a close here, guys, and I know you can't always trust that when a preacher says it, but um, let's look at these last two verses. 
um, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you in the day of salvation. I've helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Again, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ proclaim God's message, but they also proclaim God's message in God's way. In this text, Paul says that we appeal to you. In the context, again, Paul is appealing to them on the basis of his apostolic authority so that they would continue to listen to his message and not be led astray by the false teachers. He's making an appeal to them. He's pleading with them. He's urging them. He's imploring them. That word for appeal means to urge strongly, to exhort, to encourage. He's pleading them, pleading with them to continue to listen to his message and not to go astray to the false teacher's message because he knows it's going to be dangerous for them. He knows there's going to be harm come to them if they stop listening to the truth and they go astray and listen to this foolishness. Likewise, as we have the opportunity to preach the gospel, we have to preach the gospel with that same sense of urgency. Because there is a sense of urgency. Because tomorrow is not promised for any one of us. And we have to acknowledge that as we have the opportunity to share the gospel with anyone. The way we share the gospel has to reflect that. That sense of urgency, that that strong urging, that exhorting, that encouraging, that pleading. This is not a matter of choice. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of life and death. I think about this all the time. If you see a beloved family member or friend blindly walking across a busy road with an 18-wheeler barreling toward them, you're not just going to whisper to them, hey, buddy, uh, you okay? Are you, I, got, I got my truth here I'd like to share with you about that truck that's coming. Or you don't you know, just kind of sidle up to them and try to you know, befriend them before you tell them that the Mack truck is going to you know, run them down, right? No, you run as fast as you can. You yell at them and you scream, hey, you need to get out of the way. There's danger coming. Danger is coming. And you drag them kicking and screaming out of the middle of the road if you have to. Guys, danger is coming for the unbeliever. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, there's no hope for them. Danger is coming. The picture that Jonathan Edwards gives of the unbeliever state is that they're hanging by a thin thread, a very thin thread, a string over the fires of God's wrath. And this is God's common grace, just holding them over the fires of his wrath. And at any moment, the fires of his wrath could lick up and snap that rope. And they'll have no way of escape at any moment. A few things before I close. For those who know that evangelism is all of our responsibility but who still struggle, don't do it alone. Ask for help. Talk with each other. We are a body. We're a family. Talk through it with someone else in the church. Take someone else along with you. Right? Pray. Conversion is done by God. Evangelism is done by us. But it's all a work of the Spirit. Thus, we need the Spirit's enablement. Again, use helps. We do have helps available. If you don't know what to say or how to say it, we have helps available. So use the helps. And remember, fourthly, that you don't have to be a professional 
that you've been saved by God, and so you know all that you need to know in order to tell someone about the truth of the gospel. I'll give you just this last uh, marquee sign that I saw um, you know, during, during my search. Uh, when I should have been studying, I was um, yeah, reading, reading all these different marquee signs. It was uh, interesting. But this last one was, you know, really struck me. It says, uh, Jesus is coming. Look busy. And I wonder if sometimes with all of our gimmicks and all of our tricks and our programs and our fancy signs and all of the things that we try to do to draw people in, if that's all we're doing is just looking busy. And if we're just sitting around waiting for the pastor to do an altar call Sunday after Sunday, but doing nothing Monday through Saturday, all we're doing is just looking busy. But God has called us to more than that. And so let's be obedient to that. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel by which we are saved. Thank you for the gospel that was preached to us, proclaimed to us by someone else. God, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in the gospel truth. And pray that you'd help us to walk in that confidence and to proclaim the gospel truth in that confidence, knowing that all these things are from you and that you are at work in the world to save sinners and that you do that through the preaching of the gospel, that the gospel is your power to save those who believe. Father, help us to have that confidence as we go forth. In Christ's name, amen.